You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am back with yet another edition of our preseason Scouting the Enemy series. And guys, with the season rapidly approaching, I hate to say this, but this very well might be the last full Scouting the Enemy episode that we get to record this offseason. And I really, really do hate that. I mean that. These episodes, yeah, they are a lot of work for me on the front end. I mean, if you throw in film watching, the, the statistical research, outlining the episodes, recording them, editing them, all of that, I mean, we're talking like 30 plus hours each, easily for each of these episodes. But it's cool. It's a labor of love. I actually do enjoy this. Uh, you guys know I love this stuff. I love talking ball. I love breaking it down. So it's a lot, but I love it. And, and after having put in the upfront work, breaking down every single game each of these teams played last year, it really does, man. It truly pains me not to be able to dedicate a full episode to each and every team on our schedule. It feels like, honestly, a little bit of a waste, as you might imagine, putting that work in. But we've had a lot of breaking news this summer. Uh, we've done more than a few emergency podcasts which meant that I had to keep moving these episodes back further and further and further. And now here we are staring the 2021 season right in the face with plenty, plenty of other things that we need to cover and do before the season actually gets here. We are probably, if we can work the schedule out, we're probably going to do an episode later this week where we combine previews of the last few teams on the schedule into one episode. But that's really, I mean, unfortunately, it's just about all we have time for. It's not perfect. I hate that we have to do it this way, but I think it's better than nothing. But today, today we're focused on today, we've got a full-on deep dive glory UGA style preview of the Florida Gators. If this is the last full one we get to do this preseason, we got to do it right. And we will do just that in just a minute or two. But first, I will remind you guys and gals out there that the Glory UGA podcast is brought to you by the fine people at Alumni Hall. Uh, in two weeks, guys, two weeks, it will officially be game week. Let that sink in. Two weeks, game week, let's go. And that means that you are rapidly running out of time to gear up for the 2021 season. But it's all good. No worries. Alumni Hall has got you covered for all those game day needs. If you're a polo guy like I am, they've got every Georgia polo you can imagine from every brand you can think of. They got Nike. They got Peter Millar, Cutter and Buck, Nike Golf, literally polos that you won't find anywhere else. If you're a t-shirt guy, that's cool too. They've got you covered there. They've got stuff for the ladies. They got stuff for everyone. They got stuff that you need for your tailgates. Everything that you need for your tailgate. It really is a one-stop shop for all of your game day needs. And if you watch closely enough, I know I do. I watch this like a hawk every single week. If you watch closely enough, you're going to get the best deals around. 20% off, 25% off, free shipping, all of that with their awesome flash sales that they put out pretty regularly, guys. Really, like every couple of weeks, they'll put out a flash sale and and you can get a great discount on all the stuff that you're out there to buy. So 
It's really a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. There's no other store out there like Alumni Hall for your Georgia gear and accessories needs. So shop now before it's too late. Get there before the new arrivals are all off the racks. You can go online at alumnihall.com if you're not local here in Athens. If you happen to be in the Athens area, it's just over there in the Epps Bridge Shopping Center. So hit them up in person, go online, and they have you 100% covered. I also want to remind you guys that tonight, well, if you're listening to this on Wednesday night, I guess I'm going to post this late Tuesday night. So some of you are listening to it on Tuesday night, but if you are listening to this on Wednesday, which I think most of you will be, usually we get most of our listens for for each episode the day after we post it, Wednesday night, we will have our first Instagram live session. So be there. All you got to do is follow us on Instagram. We got a lot of people getting more and more followers each and every day. I'm going to do my best to make sure I don't screw it up. I don't think that I will. But the plan is right now, Wednesday night, 8.30 on Instagram, do an Instagram live session. And really, this one's just going to kind of be an, a question answer session to start us off with. And as the as the season progresses and we do more and more of these, then we'll kind of open up and do some different things. We'll be kind of just like an Ask Me Anything session. Anything you want to know about the team, the scrimmage that just happened last week and the upcoming scrimmage, whatever it might be, can be some Georgia adjacent stuff. It doesn't have to be just about Georgia football. We can talk S. CC, you can talk the schedule, whatever it is that you want to talk about, we can do it on Instagram Live tonight, Wednesday night, 8.30 p.m. So you still got time. If you don't do Instagram, just download the app, follow Glory UGA Podcast, and you can jump in there too. You can interact directly with me right there on Instagram Live. But all right, guys, let's get down to business and talk some football, the Florida Gators. And I hate to do this. I really hate to do it. I hate that I have to do it, but you got to give credit where credit is due. Even if it is through gritted teeth, I've got to tip my cap to Dan Mullen for doing something that he had never done in 10 previous meetings against Kirby Smart coach teams where Mullen was the head coach and play caller and Kirby was at least the defense coordinator or head coach. 10 meetings before last year. Dan Mullen finally in the 11th meeting, actually beat Kirby Smart head-to-head. It had never happened before. It never happened before in their 10 previous matchups. And honestly, it had never even really come close to happening. I threw these numbers out last year, if you guys uh, were were listening to us back then. So some of you might remember this. But I threw these numbers out last year in the the preseason, kind of comparing Kirby Smart and Dan Mullen and kind of their head-to-head matchups there. So in the 10 meetings prior to last year, in the 10 meetings between the two where Dan Mullen was the head coach and play caller and Kirby was the defense coordinator or head coach, Mullen's offenses had averaged 4.2 points through three quarters in those 10 matchups and only 9.7 points total. So if you do the math, that means over the course of 10 different seasons, Dan Mullen's offenses had still yet to score 100 points total, total on Kirby Smart defenses coming into last year. Now, we know they got about halfway to that total last year. Different story, right? And if you take it a step further, Mullen's offense, they only averaged coming to last year, they had only averaged 275 yards a game against Kirby Smart defenses, while they had averaged 432 yards a game against everyone else. That's 157 yard per game differential. I know last year, it didn't turn out that way. They put up... They were moving the ball almost at will on us, especially in that second quarter where they came storming back and took a two-score lead in that quarter. It was just not fun to watch. It really wasn't. But again, I hate to do it. Got to give Dan Mullen credit. They won the game. It happened last year. Sure, it, it happened during a pandemic and in the season where circumstances outside our control conspired to dictate to us that we had to start a former walk-on at quarterback who will almost certainly be third string at best coming into this season. And of course, we also had multiple starters out with injury in that game. And then Stetson Bennett himself gets knocked out of the game after we go up 14-0 to open it. But whatever, despite the context, again, got to give him credit. It happened. Dan Mullen finally beat Kirby Smart head-to-head. It happened. They beat us and they went on to win the ACCE. So you got to do what you got to do. You got to tip your cap to them. So how did they do it? I mean, we all know what happened last year with Florida. I mean, they did it with an elite offense. That was the name of the game for Florida last year, an elite offense, a top 10 offense littered with playmakers that averaged over 500 yards and 40 points a game. They hit both those markers against us last year. Dan Mullen can coach offense. Again, hate to do it. Got to give the guy credit. He can coach offense. He may be a clown of a human being and clearly a subpar recruiter, but he's a great offensive mind. He is. 
So they did it with an elite offense, and they also did it with a defense that just hung on for dear life. Like, really, they really won those games. They beat us, won the SEC East, got to the SEC title game in spite of what was just truly a horrific defensive effort for them all of last year, a defense that fell off a cliff last season under Todd Grant. I mean, they just, I don't, it's hard to explain. We'll try to explain later on. It's hard to explain exactly what happened to them in one year. They were 83rd nationally in total defense, giving up 428 yards a game. They were 85th nationally in yards per play, allowed 6.6 yards per play. So they gave a lot of yards and they weren't efficient. Rush defense, they were 71st nationally, giving up 171 yards a game, 4.56 yards per run. And just for comparison's sake, guys, we know we were really good against, against the run. You know that. We gave up 2.39 yards per rush last year. We like we were almost twice as good as they were against the run last year. That's how bad it got for Florida in 2020 defensively. But they were saved by their truly elite offense last year. But that was last year. It happened. We can't run from it. But I don't know about you guys, I'm done with last year. I'm done with it. I'm full steam ahead with the 2021 season, and that is what we are focusing on today. So the question becomes, was last year the isolated anomaly that just lined up to kind of be that perfect storm where we had some injuries and they had an unusual number of playmakers offensively? Or was it, as Florida fans are trying to suggest, a harbinger of things to come where Florida will now seize firm control of the SEC East for the foreseeable future. Now, you guys that have been with us for a while, if you really listen to the show going back to last year and even before that, you know where I stand on this. I told you coming to last year that I thought we were the better team. And I stand by that. I know we lost, but I stand by that. The team I thought we were going to have in that game is not the team that we ended up having in that game. I told you that Kirby Smart was the superior coach. I once again stand by that. One game does not change my opinion there when we already have so much other information and so much other evidence to the contrary. I also told you that Dan Mullen would probably jump up and beat us eventually at Florida. I told you that last offseason. I thought Kirby Smart's a better coach. I still think Kirby Smart's a better coach, but doesn't mean Dan Mullen can't cycle up one year here and there like he did last year and jump up and beat us. Of course that can happen, and we saw it happen last year, but I also said that wouldn't be the rule. It would be the anomaly. And today on the podcast, I want to lay out exactly why I think that's the case, at least for this year, and why I'm confident this year that Kirby Smart and the Georgia Bulldogs will once again remind everyone who runs the SEC Eastern Division. And it starts with the quarterback position. We all expect Emory Jones to ultimately end up being the starting quarterback, and that's the that's widely expected. I mean, that is the assumption right now heading into this season. He's a fourth-year junior. This is his fourth year on campus. He's a former top 100 quarterback out of LaGrange here in the state of Georgia. And through three years in Gainesville, he's thrown for 613 yards and five, and he's rushed for 514 yards in three seasons. He's never been the guy. He's been a spot guy. He played more than he ever had last year. They got him in in certain situations, kind of as a Wildcat quarterback to kind of jump start the run game because they just could not run the ball consistently. They let him throw the ball a couple times late in the season, especially when they got into the bowl game. He played a lot in that game. But he's only thrown still to this point only 86 total passes through three years. And he is replacing a guy that put up numbers that Florida quarterbacks have not touched in a while. Trask was very average in 2019. If you go back and look at his numbers, very, very average. But you got to give him credit. He took a massive leap forward last year with all the skill talent he had to work with. I think it's more about the skill talent than it was about Kyle Trask. But he was a great fit in that offense. He was a great distributor. He was a great decision maker. He understood coverages. He knew where to go with the football. And that worked really well when you have guys like Kadarius Toney and Kyle Pitts and Trayvon Grimes to throw the ball to. And depending on your allegiance, depending on whether you're a Florida fan or you're not a Florida fan or a fan of a rival fan base, you have a different take on Jones. I mean, look, we all know how Georgia fans feel about Emory Jones right now. We're certainly at, at the very least in wait and see mode. And most Georgia fans are not believers. And I'm I'm kind of somewhere in the middle there. But for Florida fans, oh, they're, they're convinced he's the guy. I mean, don't even, it's not even a question for them. Of course they are. It's what football, that's what college football fans do. They just know, they have certainty. You lose one of the best quarterbacks you've had in a long time, but the next guy's going to be even better. No worries, he's going to be even better, right? And we do that too. We do that too. 
Everybody does that. But Florida fans, they're full on in denial mode about losing Kyle Trask and what they got in Emory Jones. According to Florida fans, look, hey man, you know, yeah, he's been here three years, but he knows the system. You know, and don't forget, Dan Mullen, he's the quarterback whisperer. And by the way, you know, he's a better fit for Dan Mullen's traditionally preferred system of offense anyway. So let's address those real quick, all right? Now, he has been in the in the offense for, for three years. Does he know the system? Yeah, probably. Probably knows it pretty well. Now, I would argue the system they're going to run this year is going to be a little bit different, a lot different, actually, than what they ran last year. But yeah, I think it's reasonable. That, that's a reasonable part of what they're saying, that yeah, he's been around a while. He should know the system by now. Now, the Mullen is a quarterback whisperer thing. That, that cracks me up. Now, has Dan Mullen had success with certain quarterbacks? Yeah, of course. Dak Prescott, massive success. We all know that. Kyle Trask last year had massive success last year. He was the Heisman Trophy candidate. At times, maybe even a front runner for the Heisman Trophy candidate, even though he did not ultimately end up winning that trophy. But Dan Mullen is a quarterback whisperer. When, and it's okay to point out the guys that he's had success with, the guys that he's taken as like three-star prospects and really turned them into high-level quarterbacks. That's okay. I mean, that's happened. Dak Prescott, Kyle Trask, those things happen. Tim Tebow back at Florida, yeah, those things happen. But what makes me laugh sometimes, just chuckle a little bit on the inside, is that when people talk about Dan Mullen as a quarterback whisperer, they just conveniently, oh so conveniently, forget all of his failures at the quarterback position. Guys like Felipe Franks, right? Felipe Franks, remember how terrible he was at Florida? He was all right at Arkansas last year once he got away from Dan Mullen, right? What about Nick Fitzgerald? Yeah, great runner, great option quarterback. That dude was a train wreck as a quarterback. I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons Mullen left. Fine, because Mullen had the opportunity to leave Mississippi State before he left for Florida. Maybe he was waiting for that job. Certainly could be a possibility. But I think he realized, man, I, I can't work with this. I can't do anything in here. He just couldn't fix him. Fitzgerald never became a passer. So there are plenty of times he, he has done a good job of quarterbacks. There's also plenty of opportunities and plenty of examples where he hasn't really gotten it done with guys. He hasn't turned them into overnight successes, taken those three stars and made them superstars overnight. So I just I, I always find that kind of comical. You know, yeah, he's had some successes, but he's also had a number of failures that we just conveniently fail to mention. We just ignore them. Uh, now, better fit for Mullen's traditionally preferred system. I do think that's true. The Florida fan wants to throw that out there. Traditionally, like go back to what Mullen was doing at Mississippi State with guys like Dak Prescott, mentioned Nick Fitzgerald, and even Tim Tebow back in Florida. And you go back to Utah as well, like with Alex Smith. Traditionally, he favors a dual threat quarterback. His offense, his preferred offense, what he's been running most of his career as a play caller is kind of centered around a dual threat quarterback. That's clearly what he prefers. That's what he has kind of searched for and recruited throughout his time as a head coach and, and an offensive coordinator. I mean, that's why Felipe Franks was starting over Kyle Trask. He thought Felipe Franks was a, a better runner at, at, than Kyle Trask was. And he's not a, a Dak Prescott level runner, but he was more of a threat with his legs than Kyle Trask was. I mean, that, that's why he spent so much time investing in Felipe Franks and trying to turn him into a, a good quarterback, which never really happened while he was at Florida. But when it comes to the curious case of Emory Jones, guy has been there for now his fourth year and just hasn't ever really grown into the guy, I can't sit here and tell you exactly how it's going to work out. We don't know, but we can have opinions. And what I can say is that I have serious doubts about Emory Jones. I'm open to the idea that Emory Jones could be a breakout player this year, a breakout star. It's certainly possible. We've seen that before. We've seen it before with Dan Mullen. It could be possible. It could happen. It wouldn't stun me if that happened. But again, what I can say is that I still have serious doubts that that's going to end up being the case. And there's a couple reasons why. I mean, just think about this, guys. Like, this is nothing to do necessarily with like what we've seen on the field, but like just use our brains here. Let's, let's be logical about this. His first three years there in Gainesville, he could not win the job. He could not win the job when Felipe Franks was an absolute disaster for them. And they were having like almost open auditions for that job in the middle of the year back in 2018. He couldn't beat out Kyle Trask in 2019 when Felipe Franks went down. And guys, I know Trask was great last year, put up fantastic numbers. He deserves credit for that, but he was slightly above average in 2019. And he couldn't beat out Trask then. Emory Jones couldn't win that job in 2019. And here's the other thing for me. Like, just, I keep thinking about this. I keep coming back to it. If Emory Jones is such a great fit for Dan Mullen's preferred quarterback run-centric offense, which I do think that he is a great fit for that offense, then he must have been off the charts bad in practice if Mullen was willing to play a marginally talented player who had essentially no ability to run the football and clearly did not fit his preferred offensive system. You would think 
with what Emory Jones gave him as a dual threat quarterback, which fits what he's done his entire career as a play caller, more or less, that he would have given Emory Jones every single chance. And I think he did give Emory Jones every single chance, basically every year that he's been on campus, and he just still has not been able to take that job. Maybe he takes it this year, but that just gives me some pause there, man. It gives me some reason to doubt that this is the year that magically Emory Jones is going to flip that switch and he's just going to be a superstar. It could happen. Yes. Again, I'm open to that. Anything's possible. I just have doubts. If you look at kind of the context here and how things have gone for Emory Jones since he's gotten to Gainesville. Now, what we do know is that Emory Jones is a very talented runner. He is. He's, he's got that talent. He's a great athlete, a fantastic athlete. And he's also got a great arm, like physically, a very strong arm. But from what we've seen of him as a passer, and it is a limited sample size, we must say that. But from what we've seen, what we have to work on, also going back to high school as well, watching that tape, he's just a marginal passer. I, not, I can't say, sit here and say that he's a terrible passer, but he has some accuracy issues. He's shown some some issues going through progressions consistently. Hasn't really been asked to do that, which leads you to believe that maybe he's not ready to do those kinds of things. Now, maybe that all changes. Maybe if he goes in the offseason and thinking he's the guy, maybe all that changes magically. Could happen. But I, I think that's a leap. That requires a mental leap to think that right now based off what we have seen from him. And he's replacing a guy in Kyle Trask that set so many records last year. He set SEC records for consecutive four touchdown games, six consecutive games with four touchdown passes, set an SEC record with the most passing touchdowns through seven games, 30 passing touchdowns in seven games, set a Florida record for single season touchdowns at 43, a Florida record for single season pass yards at a little over 4,200 yards passing last year. And People just think that Emory Jones is going to come step in and they're just not going to miss a beat offensively because he's a better fit for what Dan Mullen's done traditionally. Again, maybe, maybe, man, maybe. But I just, I don't know if it's logical and reasonable to have that as your expectation. I think it's far more likely, far more reasonable to expect there to be some sort of drop-off there. Now, how much of a drop-off, that certainly remains to be seen. But I think the more reasonable outcome here, the more likely outcome is that there's going to be a drop-off from what you saw from Kyle Trask in this Florida offense last year. And think about this too. So Emory Jones is supposed to make this giant leap and they're not really supposed to, to miss a beat offensively with all of that A-plus level skill talent that they're losing. Like really? Just not going to miss a beat there? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So let's go there next, and let's talk about what they lost at the skill positions especially out wide at the pass catching positions. So you lose two top 20 picks in the NFL draft. One of those being a top four pick in Kyle Pitts going to the Atlanta Falcons. So you lose Kyle Pitts, you lose Kadarius Tony, both first round draft picks. Kyle Pitts, man, again, I hate to say it, but was one of the best tight ends that, that we've ever seen at the college level, at least in the the modern college game. I mean, his 12 touchdowns last year were the most by a tight end in the last decade. And he did that in eight games, eight games that guy played last year. And he was the first tight end to finish in the top 10 in the Heisman voting since 1977. 
That's truly a generational player at tight end, and they're losing that this year. Kadarius Toney was a monster in the slot. He kind of been a, a just a bit player for them for the first couple of years, but he came on. They finally started utilizing him like he was meant to be utilized out of the, out of the slot, and he was just a monster. He's got that short area quickness, that twitchiness. Um, they use him on screens, use him in the RPO game, and he was just so tough to handle, especially when you got Kyle Pitts that you got at California. You must have to double team every single time. Tony's in demand a lot of single coverage, and he just ate that alive last year. And then the third guy, you got Trevon Grimes, who wasn't as talented as the other two, but he got a lot of one-on-one coverage opportunities on the outside, and he was able to take advantage of those and some one-on-one opportunities with his size and physicality. Those three guys, Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Tony, and Trevon Grimes, who are all three gone, by the way, they are not in Gainesville anymore. They accounted for 72% of Florida's scoring in the passing game last year. Those guys are gone. There are still some quality players on this roster, but there is no one that they have right now that has shown the ability to be that kind of guy, okay? To be a Kyle Pitts level impact player or even a Kadarius Tony level impact player that can dictate coverage. None of those guys returning who are, they're talented, but none of them have shown the ability to be one of those game plan record type players on offense. None of them have shown that they can be that type of guy, the type of guy that can dictate coverage and open up everything else for the other skill players, the way that Kyle Pitts was able to do when he was on the field, the way that Kadarius Toney was able to do when he was on the field. You got two of those guys on the field at the same time, two guys that you almost have to double cover. They don't have guys like that right now. They don't have the type of guy that can that can make a marginally talented quarterback look like a Heisman candidate. They don't have that. At least they don't have anyone that's shown the ability to do that yet. So who does Emory Jones have to work with this season? Well, I think the guy that, that comes to mind first when you watch the tape among the returners is, is Jacob Copeland. He was up and down. Like the thing with Jacob Copeland is that he looks the part. Like physically, he's got a, a pretty good body. He's not like the the biggest or longest guy. Six foot, about two hundred pounds, but he's pretty well put together. He's got good speed, good quickness. But the thing is, like he just didn't produce at anything approaching an elite level. He, even like he didn't even really produce at a good level. Like it was. I mean, I don't even know if he was produced at an average level. Pro Football Focus graded him out last year at a fifty six point four grade. He had an eighteen percent drop rate. So. When you look at Copeland, it's kind of a mixed bag. Yes, he looks the part. I think he has the physical potential to be a number one wide receiver, but he's got a long way to go. He certainly was not that last year. Now, he will get increased opportunities for sure, but again, in the opportunities he got last year, he wasn't really productive. 56.4 grade, 18% drop weight. That's not going to cut it. That's not the kind of guy, like I was saying, that can dictate coverage. That's not the kind of guy that can take a marginally talented quarterback and make them look like a Heisman candidate. That type of guy that can be a game plan wrecker. He's not that type of guy. He hasn't shown it yet with those kind of numbers. Now, a guy that I'm also really intrigued by is Xavier Henderson, who's actually C.J. Henderson's brother. He used to play cornerback for Florida. I'm sure you guys remember him. Now, this guy has some ability. I think he can be a really good player. He's a top 100, former top 100 recruit. He's tall, but really, really thin and lanky, but he's got good speed. He's got a really good catch radius, solid hands. I think he's a guy that can grow into a really good player for them. Now, again, I, I, I can't say that he can be like one of those true elite coverage dictating type guys. We just haven't seen that from him. But he is a talented guy, has some potential there. We just got to see how much of a jump he makes this year. Then you have the guy that transferred him from Penn State last year, Justin Shorter, kind of a bigger, more physical receiver. Made a couple plays last year. But again, I just I don't know if Justin Shorter, I don't believe, honestly, that Justin Shorter, based off what I've seen from him, is the kind of guy that can go out there and be a true number one wide receiver. I just have not seen that from him. I think he's really good when you have a couple other guys can be your number one and you're like 1A and 1B type players like you had last year with Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Toney, and then he can make some plays off of that in single coverage. I don't think he can be like the focus of a defensive game plan. He's not that kind of guy. At tight end, obviously, you're losing Kyle Pitts. There's no replacing Kyle Pitts. But Keon Zipper is another interesting prospect. I think he's an athletic guy. Certainly not as athletic as Kyle Pitts, but he's got some athleticism. He is more that kind of new age tight end where you can flex him out and do some of the things that you did with Kyle Pitts. He just can't do it quite like Kyle Pitts. So I think he's a good player, though. He'll certainly be a, a, a big part of their offense. I think that Dan Mullen will try to feature him in ways. I think he's he's got a good skill set there. So there are some options, but I just don't know... If there's that one guy, I don't think, I haven't seen it from any of those guys. They would say, there's one guy that like, yeah, just go ahead and pencil him and he's going to be their number one. It could be 
potentially Xavier Henderson. It could be Jacob Copeland. I don't think it'd be Justin Shore. I think it's going to be either Copeland or Henderson, probably be the number one guy. But even whoever emerges as the number one guy, they're not going to be the impact type player that Kyle Pitts was last year or Kadarius Tony. So there's going to be a drop there. And then the running game was and kind of has been a problem for Florida under Dan Mullen the past couple of years. They were 11th in the SEC in rushing last year. They were 13th the year before that. They averaged 131 yards a game rushing last year, 129 yards per game two years ago. And I got to give Dan Mullen credit here. I, again, hate to do this, but I'll give him credit again. He has realized that. He understands they don't run the ball well. And he really stopped even trying to run the ball last year, especially about halfway through the year. And I mean, they were 13th in the in the league in attempts last year. They were eighth in yards per rush. So they really, they, they were below average in efficiency as well. They just haven't been running the football well. And that's one of the reasons Kyle Trask put up so many numbers is like, well, you're just gonna throw the football a ton, man. You're gonna throw the ball 40, 50 times a game. If you look at what we got, skill positions, you look at that we at the fact that we have trouble running the football, we're just gonna throw the football. And so they got opportunities and then they they'd certainly delivered with the passing game. But when you look at the issues they've had in the running game, I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think there's three things I'm gonna point out here. Number one, I just don't think that Dan Mullen, as good of an offensive coach as he is, he has not shown me that he knows how to design an effective running game without a dual threat quarterback. Now, give him a dual threat quarterback, and he has a dangerous run game. He's shown that historically. But without that guy that can actually run the football, he from that position, he hasn't really shown the ability to build a any kind of running game, efficient or effective running game. And I think that's one of the reasons that he's always so enamored with those dual threat quarterbacks. I think that's a big part of it. The other part of it for Florida is that they just have pathetic offensive line play. They've just been really bad on the offensive line. They haven't been good. They've been average at best in pass protection and, and below average in, uh, in in the run game. Now, against teams that they match up with physically better, they, they have no issues. Against Vanderbilt, they can run the football. Against Missouri, they can run the football. But against Georgia, against Alabama, they're going to be able to run the football because their offensive lines are get dominated. That, that's what happened last year against us. That's what happened against Alabama, against better teams that can actually play a little run defense and just outclass them, out-talent them up front. They can't run the football. So that's another part of it. And then the third part of it is just, they, generally speaking, just had a lack of game breakers at running back. They, they, they've had some guys that are pretty good. Like, P. Ryan was pretty good. He was fine, but he wasn't a game breaker at running back. Mullen did a good job of finding ways to use him that fit his skill set, but like just lining up as a traditional running back and, and just gouging teams play after play, that's, they just haven't had a running back like that. So who are the options this year at that position? Well, they got a couple guys coming back, all right? And I, actually, I'm pretty high on a couple of these guys. Now, Malik Davis, I think will be their number one guy this year when I watch the tape as I did during the offseason. Malik Davis is the one that kind of flashed the most to me in terms of like his consistency and his playmaking ability. He was a major threat for Florida out of the backfield in the run game last year. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers that he was able to put up, I mean, that guy made some plays. I mean, just in terms of like total yards, if you look at Malik Davis, he had 377 yards receiving last year out of the backfield, 31 receptions, 12.2 yards per catch. And then if you look at some of the pro football focus numbers, Davis was third among all FBS running backs in receiving grade and second in yards per route run. He averaged 2.82 per route run. So, I mean, he was as good as a guy in the country really last year out of the backfield as a receiver, and he's back this year. Another guy that I think is pretty talented that maybe flashed more potential of being like maybe possibly one of those breakout running backs, those kind of like game changers at running back that Florida hasn't really had under Dan Mullen was a freshman last year named Nyquan Wright. Now, he wasn't the starter. He was really kind of their, their third guy last year, but when he got opportunities, I thought he was pretty good. He showed some explosives that some of the other guys just don't really have. He had 219 yards receiving uh, on 19 receptions, 213 yards rushing on 54 attempts, only averaged 3.9 yards per rush. So he wasn't consistently efficient, but he had, he had some explosive plays. He flashed that explosiveness, the ability to be kind of that more game-changing type running back for Florida, even though the numbers might not indicate that. And then Damian Pierce is a guy that's that's okay. He's more of a he's the bigger, more physical guy. And he's a guy that is actually out of Bainbridge that wanted to come to Georgia. We didn't really offer him a committable offer. He ends up at Florida and he's done some solid things for them last year. I mean, he was their leading rusher, 503 yards rushing on 106 carries, 4.7 yards per rush. I mean, just mediocrity personified. That's what Damian Pierce is. He's not a game changer. He's not explosive. He'll get you four or five yards here and there. And uh, that's kind of who he is. And I don't think there's much more to his game other than that. I think that's who he will continue to be. But here is where I will do that nauseating thing again, where I give Dan Mullen credit. 
Dan Mullen realized that Florida could not run the ball effectively or efficiently last year, but he still found a way to stress defenses with the running back by utilizing them extensively in the passing game. Guys, Florida's top three backs, so the guys I just mentioned, Malik Davis, Damian Pierce, Naquan Wright, they combined for 67 receptions for 752 yards receiving last year. Let me put that in context for you. All five of our running backs last year, all five of our running backs combined for 34 receptions and 398 yards receiving. They almost doubled us up in both categories, close enough to it, right? So they really made a concerted effort to get the ball to the running backs in the passing game, which is honestly something I wish that we did more of. You know, I like Todd Munkin. I'm a believer in Todd Munkin. I want to see us get the ball to the running backs more consistently. That has become a trend in offensive football. We saw with Florida last year, their offense put up massive numbers. We saw with Alabama, they've started to do that more. Steve Sarkeesian's big on getting the ball to the running back because defenses oftentimes, they just don't even defend the running back. We saw that last year, right? They've got to put so much attention on, on your elite receivers. If you've got Kyle Pitts, if you've got Kadarius Tony, if you're Alabama and you've got Devontae Smith and, and you've got Jalen Waddell, you've got to pay so much attention to those guys that you just don't really dedicate any resources to covering your running backs. You, you put like a linebacker on them. And a good running back is going to destroy almost any linebacker down in and down out. I want to see us do more of that. And I will give Mullen credit for kind of cracking that code and doing that. I mean, again, we saw their effectiveness out of the backfield on a loop in Jacksonville last year. Like, I don't even want to think about that, right? I've gotten so many questions about that this offseason with all their pick plays out there. So, and, and he got them the ball in a variety of ways, whether it was rail routes or like wheel routes with pick action, screens, checkdowns. He was getting the ball to them in different ways and making them a part of the game plan. So I imagine that's going to be a big part of the game plan again with all these guys coming back and also with the need to get Jones comfortable early in the season as a quarterback who really hasn't had much success throwing the ball down the field, you imagine they want to kind of ease him into things, get him comfortable, and the running backs coming back with their expertise last year out of the backfield, you imagine it'll be a big part of the game plan again early on. And you also throw in Demarcus Bowman, the former five-star that's transferring in from Clemson. And I know it might sound crazy because they've just been so bad running the football, but this could end up being the strength of the Florida offense because I do expect their run game to improve with a dual threat quarterback. I really do. Because what that does is it gives them the numbers advantage in the box. It makes things easier for the entire run game. The running back, the quarterback, the offensive line. We'll get to that a little bit more here in a second. Now, if you talk about the run game, you also talk about the offensive line. Their offensive line has been bad. I mentioned that earlier. It's just flat out been bad. That's all there is to say. The, the run game numbers, their totals, their, their average yards per rush, their total rushing yards, it all speaks for itself. They're not effective. They're not efficient on the football. And the offensive line has been a big part of that. And they're losing two starters. I still think it's very much a, a concern for the Gators this year. They don't, they're not recruiting well at that position. They don't, they're not plugging guys in that are highly rated recruits. They're trying to take these guys that are kind of marginal prospects and, and turn them into, into big time players. And that just hasn't really been working out for them. But I do believe that those issues for them along the offensive line become less of issues when they are going to be able to operate with a numbers advantage, as I just mentioned, a lot of the time and with the threat of the quarterback run. So what that's going to do, the threat of the quarterback run is going to occupy defenders and create more creases and create more running lanes. Dan Mullen also does a really good job with motion, trying to take secondary defenders out of the equation, out of the run box, out of the run fits. So I do expect them with a mobile quarterback, a guy that is a great athlete at that position, I expect them to be much better running the football this year. I don't think when you look down at their stats at the end of the year, and you're looking up, okay, where did Florida end up at the end of the year? I don't think they're going to be 11th again. I think this is probably going to be like a more top half of the SEC rush offense. I don't think they'll put up the passing numbers that they did last year. Those will take a, a, a jump off a cliff, at least in my opinion. But I don't think it's unreasonable to say that their rushing attack will be much improved this year. But one more thing about this offense. I, I don't want to move on without mentioning this. Here's the thing. Are we like absolutely 100% certain that Emory Jones is going to be their starting quarterback? I know that's the expectation. That's the assumption right now. It's almost the universal assumption at this point. But are we a thousand percent sure about that? Like especially by the time the cocktail party gets here? I don't know. I don't have any inside information here. I don't have any contacts in Gainesville. But just 
I read up on these things. I study these things. I'm into college football. I'm into things that, that impact Georgia. And looking at Florida's first scrimmage last weekend, Emory Jones, I know it's just one scrimmage. You know, and like we, we tell you guys, we preach, don't draw definitive conclusions off one scrimmage, especially the first scrimmage. But, you know, allegedly, if you read their reports coming out of that scrimmage, Emory Jones is outplayed by second-year quarterback Anthony Richardson, who's also a dual-threat guy, but maybe a, little, a bigger, more physical dual-threat guy with similar athleticism. He's very raw. He's raw as a passer coming out of high school, but maybe he's progressed. Like It's just taking Emory Jones so long to progress. Maybe it's just not taking Anthony Richardson as long. So we'll see. I don't know. My expectation is still that Emory Jones is going to be the guy, but just put that in your back pocket. Anthony Richardson might not be giving up that quarterback battle without a fight. So just, just think about that. So when you look at this Florida offense and its potential in 2021, I fully expect them to be good again. I do. I don't want them to be good again, but that's my expectation. Dan Mullen's a good offensive coach, guys. He is. I don't like the guy. He's a good offensive coach. Got to give him credit. They do have a deep group of running backs that I just laid out that, that Mullen has figured out how to use. He knows how to utilize their skill sets and what they bring to the table. There is certainly, I think there is some credence to the idea there's more of a comfort level for Dan Mullen with a dual threat quarterback. Therefore, I think their run game will be improved. It'll stress defenses in different ways. But the passing game, guys, the passing game is what made them so dynamic last year. And it's also, you know, what, think about this. Offenses featuring explosive passing games are the type of offenses that are winning national titles. That's who's winning national titles. What have we said for years? Georgia has a great running attack, but for us to take the next step in a national title, what do we got to do? We got to open up the passing game, right? We got to become more modern in terms of what we're doing, trying to push the ball down the field. Florida was great at that last year. They really were. Are they going to be as good at that this year? I think that's certainly a major question. I would lean towards no, but at the very least, I think it's a major question. I just, To me, it's just simply not reasonable at this point with all the losses at wide receiver and tight end. I mean, you lose your three best options as pass catchers, two top 20 talents, one generational player in Kyle Pitts, and you lose the signal caller that for, yeah, all his physical deficiencies, he did a great job distributing the ball, making decisions, and you're replacing him with a guy that has never once in three years demonstrated the ability to do really any of those things. So yeah, again, I think they will be good. I think they're going to go about it differently on offense this year. I certainly think that's the case. I think you'll see more of like a reversion to what Dan Mullen's done traditionally with his offenses. But at the end of the day, I just ultimately don't think they're going to be as dynamic on offense. I just don't see that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Now, the other side of the ball was a complete an unmitigated disaster last year for the Gators. I know he has a pretty good track record, especially his early years at Florida once he got there under Dan Mullen, but I'm not sure after last year how Todd Grantham still has a job. I mean, it was that bad. It was that big of a drop-off for the Florida defense. And maybe Grantham has earned a grace year. Maybe he's earned that mulligan. That's fine, I guess. But last year, make no mistake about it, was horrific for them defensively. So let's just look at the difference between Florida defensively in 2019 and Florida last year. Guys, in 2019, they were a top 10 defense nationally. Like They were that good. They averaged 304 yards a game allowed defensively. Last year, all the way up to 428. Back in 2019, they only gave up 4.9 yards per play. Last year, all the way up to 6.06, a full yard plus more than what they gave up in 2019. That might not sound like a lot, but guys, that's an astronomical increase in one year. They were second in rush defense in the conference in 2019. Last year, 10th in the SEC in rush defense. 
That is a massive drop-off no matter how you slice it. I mean, listen to some of these other numbers from last year. Scoring defense gave up 31 points a game, 74th nationally. Points per play, they gave almost half a point per play last year, guys. 79th nationally. Third down conversion, 41%. Allowed 41% of third downs to be converted, 72nd nationally. Rush defense, 171 yards per game. Negative play percentage, only 9%, 66th nationally. Pass defense, 258 yards per game, 100th nationally. Yards per pass and allowed, 7.8. That's crazy, 92nd in the country. Quarterback rating allowed, or quarterback rating against, 148. It's just 96th nationally. Explosive pass plays, 86th nationally. Guys, they were bad all the way around. Against the run, against the pass, they were bad. And look, Florida doesn't have the talent we do. They didn't have the talent we had last year. That's clear if you watch them play. But come on, they have more talent than that level of production. That's why I put a lot of it on Todd Grantham. Yes, there were some injuries that absolutely factored in. But guys, we had injuries too. And we still managed to be one of the top defenses in the country. So sure, injuries played a part in that. But come on, man. Todd Grantham, what are you doing? Just flat out embarrassing. So what happened last year? How do you account for this drop-off? So yeah, again, I know it was a COVID year. I know that that made it difficult for teams to put in game plans. I know it made it difficult to prepare. I know it made it difficult to get ready for this season. No spring practice. I know all of that was the case. But damn, man, it was a COVID year for everyone. It wasn't unique to Florida. It was something everyone had to deal with. And teams weren't that bad. They didn't have that much of a drop-off. Honestly, the biggest issue when you're looking at this Florida defense last year was the defensive line. Now, that is a spot where injuries hurt them. They did have some injuries there early in the season. They got some of those guys back later in the year, and that certainly hurt them. That meant some guys had to play out of position. For instance, Zach Carter, who's one of the better edge players in the conference, had to play quite a bit inside as like a a three-tech defensive tackle. And he's just not equipped to do that. He got just bullied in there. It took him out of what he is actually really, really good at doing, What where he is potentially special, which is kind of rushing the passer off the edge, creating havoc off the edge. He just couldn't do that. He was just outmanaged, just outmatched there on the interior. So that's, that was certainly a part of it. But they also just didn't have the guys. I mean, guys, A&M, in that game against A&M, the reason they lost that game is because Jimbo Fisher realized about halfway through that game, oh, yeah. Florida can't stop us running the football. Like after this, after halftime, they came on the second half. AM was like, we're just gonna milk this clock and run it down your throat. Honestly, when I was watching that game, because remember, guys, when Florida lost AM, we still hadn't played Florida yet. We still had a really good shot to win the East, win that division, and Florida losing AM was a very good thing for us. So I was kind of living and dying with every play in that game. And I just hate Florida. I want Florida to lose every game. I'm not a Dan Mullen guy. I hate Dan Mullen. Want him to lose every game. Dude's just a punk. So I was living and dying with every single snap. And every time in the second half that AM dropped back to throw the football, I about lost my mind. Because I'm sitting here watching, like, guys, oh my God, I know that you want to like keep them off balance. You don't want them to know that you're running it. Like, you know, generally speaking, you don't want the opposing defense to know what you're doing every single snap. You want to switch up a little bit, catch them off guard, throw some constraints in there. But when you're running the ball as effectively as AM was in that second half against Florida, like essentially running the ball at will, we're talking at least four or five yards a pop, really like seven or eight yards a pop. Why would you ever stop doing that? It just blew my mind that they would do anything but run the football in the second half. And really, that's almost all they did. They dropped back a couple times in that second half, but they they just got whatever they wanted on the ground. They steamrolled the Gators on the ground in the second half. Uh, Spiller went for 174 in that game. If you remember back to the SEC Championship game, Najee Harris went for 178 yards against Florida in that SEC title game in a route to another SEC Championship for Bama. And then we were thinking about... Our game, guys, we were actually running the ball pretty well on them early in that game. Remember, Zeus had that big run to open the game until we got behind. And we got behind, then it kind of took us out of what we wanted to do with our game plan offensively. And we started trying to throw the ball with Dewan Mathis. Clearly, that was not going to work. That was a disaster. But when we wanted to early in the game and we were still in it and not a couple scores behind, we were actually running the ball well on them. So that was something that really hurt them all throughout the year. 
And then on top of that coming into this year, so as bad as they were up front last year, and yes, injuries did have something to do with that, but they lose three seniors along that defensive line, three of the most productive players when they were healthy. Now they do return a really high, highly rated prospect in Javon Dexter. He was a former five-star player, played a lot for them as a freshman last year, but man, he was, like he flashed at times last year. Like you could see the explosiveness, you could see the athleticism there. But he was very, very inconsistent. He's not a great run defender right now. Let's just say this. He's no Jalen Carter. I know he's a five-star like Jalen was coming out of high school. But no, he's not Jalen Carter. He's not that level of player right now. Um, they also, so those three guys are losing. You're losing Campbell, Kyrie Campbell. You're losing Slayton, two of their, I think, their two best guys on the interior last year. So who are they going to replace them with to go along with Dexter? Well, they're bringing in a couple of transfers. And that could work out pretty well. It's worked out for teams before. We are ourselves relying on some transfers in the secondary. But the guys that they're bringing in haven't really produced at any kind of consistent or, or high level. I mean, Darian Kendrick, I know you can say, oh, against the best teams, he didn't play that well. I, I might slightly dispute that a little bit. I know the numbers weren't necessarily great, but you got to factor in coverages as well. But uh, he's a two-year starter at Clemson. Two-year starter at Clemson. Tyke Smith was an All-American last year. The guys that Florida's bringing in along the defensive line, Daquan Newkirk, was kind of like a rotational role player, more or less, for Auburn along their defensive front. Antonio Valentino coming over from Penn State. He's got 10 starts in his career at this point. So he's played some, but again, kind of been like a body, been a guy. He's got a couple starts, sure, but he wasn't like a consistent force for Penn State in the middle of their defense. And maybe those guys become that this year, but all I'm saying is we haven't seen them do that to this point in their career. So they're just going to go to Gainesville and like cross the threshold of Florida and be like, oh yeah, now magically we're awesome? Maybe, but I, I'm going to go with what we've seen from them to this point in their careers as the evidence here, and we haven't seen them be those kind of guys. They're good depth guys. Sure, it's better for Florida to have them because Florida was just lacking in depth, but those guys aren't like game-changing players in the middle of that defense. Now, one thing that they do allow Florida to do, bringing them in allows Florida to put a guy like Zach Carter back on the outside, on the edge there. He can slide back outside to the edge, to his more natural defensive end position. And he might be one of the better players on their entire roster, to be honest with you. I know Brenton Cox gets a lot of love. I think Zach Carter might be better. He was first on the team last year in tackles for loss with nine and a half, led the Gators in, in sacks as well with five sacks. And speaking of Brenton Cox, as their buck linebacker, their outside linebacker, I, look, I, I think Brenton Cox is a good player. But I still need to see him do it consistently to be a complete outside linebacker. And I need to see him grow and develop as a run defender. He's a good pass rusher. He's, he's still got a little stiffness in his game. I think he was a little more flexible last year than what we saw as a freshman here in Athens. But he's a good pass rusher. 80.9 pass rush grade, according to Pro Football Focus, and 18% win rate. Those are really good numbers. Those are those are above average numbers for him. And, and when he wants to, Britton Cox can, can get after the quarterback. Now, I don't know, I don't believe that he plays with a consistently high motor, and that's one thing he's got to work on. But when he when he feels like playing really hard and get after the quarterback, he can do that pretty effectively. But he just hasn't shown that he can take over a game. He hasn't shown that he's a guy that just can take over a game. Like, think about a guy like Jarvis Jones. And I know no one's saying Brent Cox is Jarvis Jones, but Brent Cox thinks he's Jarvis Jones. He thinks he's that good. And I just haven't seen that from him yet. Does he have the, the potential to become that guy this year? I think that he could. I, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But again, I haven't seen that from him yet to this point. And he absolutely needs to continue to grow as a run defender. In fact, sometimes it just seems like he's just not even interested in playing the run. Like he's just going like to pin his ears back and go off the quarterback come hell or high water. And that's not being a team player. To me, that's being selfish. And that kind of is something that's kind of fit Brent Cox a little bit since he's left high school. Let's just leave it at that. But he's a good player. He's a talented player. He could become a, an elite player from on the edge this year. He hasn't been that yet, but in his third year in college, there's certainly something, there's some potential there that he could become that kind of guy. Now, the inside linebackers are just so, so average, so average. And it's not that they don't have talent there, it's that they just don't have anybody that's like a complete linebacker. Malma Diabite, like he was a guy that played a lot for them last year, but he's really undersized. He's tall, but really lanky, very, very light in the britches. He has a really tough time playing between the tackles. He has a tough time taking on blockers, disengaging from blockers, using his hands, that kind of thing. Now you ask him to run side to the sideline, he's very good at that. But 
he's kind of like half a linebacker. He, he does half of what an inside linebacker needs to be able to do, but he can't do the whole thing. Ventrell Miller is kind of the inverse. Ventrell Miller is a bigger, uh, more physical, like throwback inside linebacker that doesn't quite have that kind of speed that Diabite has. But like when you watch Miller play, like he should be better than he is based on his size. He should be more of like a, a downhill thumper, plays between the tackles, that kind of guy. But man, he was, I don't even want to call him inconsistent. He just wasn't good. There were five games last year, about half the games he played that he graded out below 45. Like sub 50 guys, sub 45. That is just flat out terrible. There's no getting around that. And when you watch him play, like you see that you're like, man, this guy's not good. He's starting for an SEC team. He's starting for an SEC championship contender last year. Five games going out below 45. Whew, tough. And then Amari Bernie, God bless his soul, man. He's just a classic tweener. Uh, they, they experimented with him inside linebackers first couple years there. Then they tried him out at the star position, kind of like a hybrid guy. But he just hasn't been able to fit anywhere. He was, and honestly, he's a disaster at inside linebacker. I don't think they know where to play him right now. He's going to fit in inside linebacker probably in their rotation. But man, I'm telling you, when he's in there, he's a liability. He's a liability. He, do, he doesn't have great quickness, doesn't have great hips, isn't that big. So he's kind of just classic tweener, just doesn't really have a spot. But I think they're going to, it seems like right now, they're going to try to play him on the inside again. Now, taking all of that together here with this front seven, I don't think Florida will be as bad against the run as they were last year. But they are putting some band-aids on that defensive line with Daquan Newkirk, Antonio Valentino, and they're just average. They're flat out, honestly, just average at inside linebacker. Those linebackers just simly are not SEC championship caliber linebackers. They're not playoff caliber linebackers. They're just not. Now, maybe they can overcome them with great offense again. I already talked about that. I don't know if they're going to be as good offensively this year, but I don't know. I just... I have questions about this front seven again. I think they'll be better than they were last year, barring injury, because injuries did play a role in some of their struggles last year. Having Zach Carter be able to play back on the edge, I think that helps him. Britton Cox being healthy, I think that helps him. He could become a game-changing type player this year, potentially. But on the interior, they don't have any game-changers. And inside linebacker, they don't have any game-changers. So they're very, very soft up the middle. And, oh, I don't know. When we play them in Jacksonville, you think we might try to exploit that? Yeah, I think so, just a little bit. The secondary, though, this is, I mean, go back to last year, guys. I know they were bad against the run, and that got a lot of publicity last year. And they were. They were very bad against the run. What people didn't really talk about was they were also really, really bad against the pass. 100th nationally last year, guys, 258 yards per game allowed. And I honestly think the secondary might be the biggest weakness on their defense this year. Like even with Kyrie Elam at cornerback, who is a guy that I'm very high on, I think he has first-round potential, first-round NFL draft potential. He was 18th last year in his coverage grade. He was really, really good in press coverage. You watch him play, he really likes to get up in the receivers and press them at the line of scrimmage. And he was allowed to do that a fair amount with Todd Grantham last year. He uh, only allowed 0.45 yards per pass when he was in press coverage, which is really, really good. So he's back. In Florida, better think they're lucky stars. They at least have Kyrie Lim. I think he's a top-level cornerback in the SEC. Again, I think he has the potential to be a first-round draft pick as early as the 2022 NFL draft. But outside of Elam, ooh, I don't know, man. Like There are nothing but major question marks. At the other corner, opposite Elam, the projected starter was Jaden Hill. But that dude, unfortunately for them, man, and honestly, I hate it for the kid. I don't want to see anyone get hurt. He just tore his ACL in fall camp. Like, it's the kind of thing you don't wish on anyone. Like, this close to the season, gone through the offseason workout program, and then you tear your ACL. That sucks, man. I, I feel for the dude. But he's out, man. He tore his ACL there. So there is a hole on the other side of the field there, opposite Kyrie Elam at cornerback. It looks like. True freshman five-star Jason Marshall Jr., one of the few five-stars that Florida has landed under the, under Dan Mullen, is probably the guy that's going to get a long look there. Look, man, like we're all up in arms about the possibility of having to start Keely Ringo, who is a rising redshirt freshman, I guess, didn't play last year, but he's a second-year guy. At least he's been around the program. But we're talking about a true freshman, Jason Marshall? 
I don't know, man. Like I know he's a talented guy. He watched his film from last year. Yeah, he's got some skills. Like he he's got good hips. He moves well. All those things. Good ball skills. But a true freshman in this league at that position—that's tough. It's really tough. I mean, Derek Stingley did it a couple years ago with LSU, but that's that's rare, man. It doesn't happen very often. It's really hard to count on that. So I think that's a major hole. Then at the star position at say in safety, they're losing all three starters at those positions, the star and the two safety spots. They're losing Donovan Steiner. They're losing Brad Stewart. They're losing Sean Davis. Those guys are all gone. And they've got to replace them with with who? I mean, Trey Dean, guys. Trey Dean, who has been so very bad during his time in Gainesville, he's projected to be a starter at safety right now. And that's, uh, man, that's something. Because Trey Dean is not really good at anything. I mean, I've watched this guy a lot at Florida. Can't cover, can't tackle, gets lost out there, bust all the time. I mean, I hate to rag on the guy, but he really just flat out embarrasses himself out there. I mean, they've tried him everywhere out there in in the secondary. They tried him at cornerback. That didn't work. They tried him at star. That didn't work. So I now, I guess, safety? We're going to try him there? And something tells me, that's probably not going to work all that well either. Now, I know he's a veteran. He's been around a while. He's been in the system. So maybe they can trust him back there. They feel like they can trust him. But man, any spot they've put him in, he has been a liability. And it's hard to imagine that's just going to, again, magically change for them. I think a lot of Florida fans are just expecting a lot of things to just magically change for them this year so they, they, they can be a contender again. If they, and if they all end up magically changing, sure, they can be a contender. They could beat us again. They could win the East again. But is it really realistic to expect all these things? You wave a magic wand, they just poof, all magically change. I just, I don't buy that, man. I think you live in reality, you're not going to buy that. So so you look at this, it's like, okay, people talk about our issues in the secondary. They point to our secondary as a potential weakness, a fatal flaw for our team. And and I'm open, and I, I don't want that to be the case, but it could be, it could be. There are some issues there. I think we did a good job at kind of answering some of those questions in the transfer portal with Tyke Smith and Darian Kendrick. But, you know, we have a cornerback position where somebody that hasn't really played a lot is going to be playing a lot of snaps there. And there's not a ton of depth right now, at least not a ton of experience depth if somebody does get hurt, God forbid. But, I mean, if you're talking about issues in our secondary, what about Florida, man? Honestly, look at it objectively. Florida has, in my opinion, far more question marks in their secondary than we do. But no one's talking about that on a national scale. It's just, oh, the talking about Georgia secondary. That's talking about well, Georgia secondary. Well, I mean, that's that's a problem. You know, uh, what are they going to do? Look at what Florida's got. They got one guy. I mean, Elam's really good. Other than that, and it's like, whoa, all right, man. All right, I don't, I don't know. So when you look at this Florida team in totality, wrapping it up here, put the offense together, put the defense together, you see a team that is, I think, pretty clearly going to look different on offense. They just don't have the kind of guys, the personnel, whether it's a quarterback or receiver or tight end, to do the things they did last year so effectively. But they're still going to be good. I think they're going to be good offensively. Again, I, I do, like if they, whoever it is, whether it's going to be, as everyone expects it to be, whether it's going to be Emory Jones or potentially maybe Anthony Richardson if he continues to kind of come on there. Either one of those guys, they're both dual threat quarterbacks. I think you're going to see a reversion back to Dan Mullen's traditional comfort zone there with the offense. I do think they will run the football better just by virtue of having a dual threat quarterback and what that does to open up creases, open up seams in the run game, give them a numbers advantage, all those things that a mobile quarterback does for an offense, especially in a Dan Mullen offense that he's had so much success with. So I do think they'll be good on offense. But I think it's also very fair to say that they'll almost certainly take a step back offensively. I don't see them putting up 500-plus yards a game like they did last year, 40-plus points a game. I just do not see that with what they lost last year and who they have coming to try to replace those guys. Now, they might be able to withstand that step back on offense if the defense jumps back up inside the top 10 where they were prior to last season. But as I kind of just laid out, looking at that roster, do you guys see that? Because I don't. I just, I don't see that. There are just too many holes on this defense to think they're going to jump back up inside the top 10 nationally this year. Now, do I think they'll be as bad as they were last year on defense? No, I do not. I think they've at least got some guys that can play on the interior, allow, again, allow Zachary Carr to move outside. I think Brent Cox can be really good. But inside linebacker, these guys are average, man. Um, they've, I think they're average on the interior with that defensive line. They got some good pass rushers. They got one good cornerback and then some massive questions everywhere else in that secondary. So is that enough to compensate for an offense that's replacing really all of its best players from last year? 
I personally do not think that's the case. I, I don't think it's enough to compensate for that. And because of that, and the fact that our roster is just one through 85, pretty clearly the superior roster. And then you also throw in the revenge factor from last year, that motivation, and the fact that we will hopefully, hopefully be healthy and also hopefully not starting a former walk-on at quarterback. I've got my money on the dogs, not only to beat Florida, but again, win the SEC East by doing so. Now, of course, we'll have to see how it all plays out. I had George over Florida last year. I ended up being wrong there, but I think there were kind of some extenuating circumstances there. When I made that pick and talked about that all offseason, I was not I was kind of anticipating Jamie Newman being our quarterback. I was not anticipating him kind of just jumping ship a couple weeks before the season started. You didn't see all the injuries happen. You didn't see Stetson Bennett being our quarterback. That was not even like a remote thought in my mind. I didn't think that, I didn't even consider that a possibility. So yeah, I got that wrong last year, but previous years, I did get that right, and I think I'll be right again this year. Of course, we'll revisit that. Hopefully, I'll be right. I'm sure all of you hope that I'll be right there. But uh, all right, guys, that does it for me today here on the Glory UGA podcast. I really appreciate you guys sticking with me. We've had a lot of fun this offseason with these scouting enemy episodes. I really am sorry that I, I kind of had to cut it short here because we are just running out of time. But I think we're going to try again to be back later on this week with at least a little mini preview of the four teams we have not gotten to yet, which would be Kentucky, Clemson, Tennessee, and yeah, I guess we'll talk about Georgia Tech as well. I guess if we've got to. So we'll at least touch on those teams as much as we can. It might not be as in-depth of a preview, but it'll be something. So look forward to that. I also remind you guys again one last time, if you want to check out our very first Instagram live session, it's Wednesday night at 8.30. I'll be there live answering any and all of your questions. It'll be kind of just an open-ended kind of ask me anything session. We'll do that for about a half hour or so, however long it needs to go. And we will have a lot of fun with that. So if you're on Instagram, just make sure you're following us at Glory UGA Podcast. If you're not on Instagram yet, go ahead, download the app real quick. You won't regret it. Not only are we going to do this Instagram live session, we'll do a couple more of these as well. And we're going to have a lot of stuff during the season. I'm going to try to do some Instagram live stuff uh, during game, during halftime of games if we have enough Wi-Fi in some of those stadiums. We're going to give you a lot of cool stuff, like live on location from all the different game sites all throughout the season. So we've got a lot of great stuff planned for you. But to get access to that, you need to make sure you're following us on Instagram. But all right, guys, that's all I got for you today. I got to get out of here. I'm Tyler. Thanks for listening. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>